This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to another episode of the New Books Network podcast in Asian American Studies. I'm your host, Donna Doan Anderson, PhD candidate in history and Asian American studies at the University of California, Santa Barbara. I'm joined in conversation today with Dr. James Arcidias. In this episode, we discuss how myths of suburbia, the American West, and the American dream informed regional planning, suburban design, and ideas about race and belonging in California's East San Gabriel Valley, as found in Zarsidia's debut monograph, Resisting Change in Suburbia, Asian Immigrants and Frontier Nostalgia in Los Angeles. Published by the University of California Press in October 2022, Resisting Change in Suburbia recently won the Organization of American Historians Lawrence W. Levine Award which is an honor acknowledging the year's best book in American cultural history. Additionally, Zarsidias has received awards for his research, including the Urban History Association's Arnold Hirsch Award and the Vernacular Architecture Forum's Catherine W. Bashir Prize. These acknowledgments are fitting given the ample interventions provided to those of us interested in California history, post-World War II suburbanization, and post-1965 Asian settlement. Throughout the six chapters, Zarsidius illustrates the demographic transitions of the suburbs making up the East San Gabriel Valley from the 1960s through the 1990s, and how these communities, despite racial and class differences, sought to protect their connections to a perceived ideal of country living away from LA's ever-expanding metropolitan center. Zarsidius constructs the region's history of settlement quite literally from the ground up by taking us through the development of master-planned neighborhoods, emulating a rural-suburban American experience, such as Phillips Ranch and Rowland Heights, to the regulation on architectural aesthetics following the arrival of Asian residents found in Chino Hills and Walnut, to the dueling narratives of whether to incorporate or not incorporate found in Hacienda Heights and Diamond Bar. In short, resisting change in suburbia, quote, serves a window into the mindset, perspectives, and lives of typically upward mobile suburbanites of the East San Gabriel Valley and how the suburbs they lived in grappled with spatial, demographic, and political change in the late 20th and early 21st centuries, end quote. In addition to resisting change in suburbia, Zarsidias is an associate professor of history and serves as the director of the Yuchenko Philippine Studies Program at the University of San Francisco. He specializes in Asian American history, urban and suburban studies, social movements, and histories of the American West. Welcome to the New Books Network, James. Thanks for being here today. Thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk about your book today. And so before we get into the analysis of your details, um, could you help situate our listeners to the East San Gabriel Valley and your relationship to it? So the East San Gabriel Valley is part of a wider valley in the LA area known as the San Gabriel Valley. 
And so I make this distinction because uh, there are different patterns of migration and and urban and suburban growth throughout the region that differ, right? And so for me, I say East San Gabriel Valley because, you know, how it looks, how it feels, the demographics are slightly different from the West side uh, and the histories of settlement. But also the, in terms of the scholarship of the region, in terms of greater LA and the San Gabriel Valley in general, much of the literature out there in the social sciences, in the humanities, is is skewed towards the West San Gabriel Valley. So for me as a historian, as someone that's invested in ethnic studies and urban studies and in history of the American West, I notice a pattern in a lot of the um, existing literature and scholarship that there were gaps um, and, and areas of the region that were not well covered. And that was oftentimes the East San Gabriel Valley. In the book, I focus on six particular suburbs, Chino Hills, Diamond Bar, Walnut, Phillips Ranch, which is part of Pomona, Hacienda Heights, and Roland Heights. Why I focus on those six communities in the East San Gabriel Valley is because they developed in similar fashion and they attracted similar uh, communities of people, right? So in terms of class, in terms of race, in terms of generation, in terms of also even political views, which I get into in the book as well. My personal connection to the region beyond those professional academic reasons that I just laid out is because I grew up in the area. I was born and raised in East San Gabriel Valley, and I, I'm very clear about that in the book. You know, I, I have that direct tie. And so I have not just uh, an intellectual and academic and professional, you know, uh, reason, set of reasons and and desires to learn more about the area, but also, you know, I grew up there. And I wanted to help understand, help all of us understand, you know, why this area is crucial to not just understanding Los Angeles and Southern California, but just to kind of get to these bigger questions that are really crucial for understanding, you know, the United States at this time, but Asian America at this time. And when I say this time, I'm focusing largely, you know, the years following World War II, but specifically the decades following World War II the 1970s, the 1980s, the 1990s, and even into the 2000s is kind of the bulk of, of my focus for this book. So I have a range of personal, professional, academic interests and investments in this. And that's why I was really happy to write this book. And I'm really glad that it's out there and, and it's making its rounds and people are, are learning, you know, different aspects about California history, Asian American history, American history in general, but also learning about kind of you know, some of these trends and phenomena that are a big part of our everyday lives, like suburban growth, um, you know, everyday life in retail spaces or religious spaces, uh, all these other aspects that, that we don't often put a spotlight on. And that, that those were among my goals in writing this book. I think you did a great job of achieving all of those goals. I really enjoyed reading it. And I love the subtitle to your book, um, which is about frontier nostalgia. So I think that gets us into the second question. You begin the book by referencing a priority of country living in the post-World War II moment, saying that the development of the East San Gabriel Valley was informed by future residents hoping for an idyllic California removed from forces of modernity. How do you define country living and why are early residents seeking this romanticized ruralism and frontier nostalgia when in reality, they're situated just miles away from downtown Los Angeles. Definitely. Uh, some great points you just made in question. I, 
country living is a phrase that I use. And I also use um, frontier nostalgia interchangeably throughout the book uh, because, you know, when I was doing the archival research on the region, that was a, a phrase that kept coming up over and over. Um, country living or living in the country or this idea or set of ideas or, or words that evoked this sense of living in the frontier in a rural idyllic pastoral setting, right? Bucolic, you know, uh, environment. And so I use country living as a way to describe not just how these communities appeared, but how residents themselves, developers, planners, politicians in the area, how they wanted their communities to look and feel and function and operate. So country living became not even just a way to describe the communities aesthetically, but also it had political meaning. It had, um, you know, a, a social impact on these communities. And country living for, depending on who you ask, you know, can mean different things. So I get into this in the book, you know, when I talk about different waves of settlement, if you are a settler that uh, that moved to the East Sangerville Valley in, let's say, the 1960s, uh, the, at the time, the area was, I think, for most people, for all intents and purposes, a, a very rural area. I mean, these were just rolling hills, meadows, um, truly cattle grazing and, and, and horses, you know, kind of galloping through the area because this was an equestrian area as well. So this was really you know, I think for a lot of people in their, in a lot of people's eyes at the time, and even now, you know, very Western landscape in that sense. Uh, and so they see country living like that. If I talk about the second wave of settlers who came in, you know, around the late seventies, uh, through the, through the 1980s, these folks were more middle, upper middle class. Um, they were settling into, um, not these, um, you know, ranch houses or self-built homes like the previous generation, but these were people who were moving into track housing, right? And so these were more modern uh, homes, single family homes. And their definition of country living um, was what a lot of the advertise, uh, advertisers and builders promoted, which was this idea of a glamorous Western landscape. You know, at the time in America, this was the era in which Western fashion, Western culture was was in vogue. So you had, you know, Wrangler jeans and Dallas and Dynasty dominating primetime television. You had uh, a Western president, Ronald Reagan. Um, and so all of this is to say is that their definition of Western country living or, you know, frontier nostalgia was was informed by these very, you know, romanticized and in some ways classist you know, ideas of, of, of life in the country. Then you get into the third wave of settlers that I, I discuss in the book as well. And um, this becomes more diverse in terms of seeing more Asian immigrants. And they, like their predecessors in the second wave, they see a type of country living that is, again, Western, uh, you know, semi-rural, bucolic, um, peaceful, idyllic, all of those things. But there's also this sense of country living as something that is associated with a sense of refinement, of elegance. Um, and that is, you know, kind of a marker of, you know, if you if you can move into one of these suburbs of Southern California, you know, you're now joining a timeless landscape, you're, you're now part of an upper echelon. Because you have to remember, too, since World War II, and really up until the last, you know, really up until the last, you know, 
decade and a half or two decades, people couldn't wait to leave the American city, whether it's LA, whether it's Chicago, whether it's Baltimore or Detroit, people had such strong anti-urban sentiments. And that was across racial and class lines. It wasn't just white residents. It wasn't just Asian immigrants. A lot of people really saw the American city as decrepit, as falling apart, as dangerous, vice-ridden, and that suburbs, especially these idyllic, quote-unquote, country-living suburbs, they were the, you know, the antithesis of that, you know, that new norm of the American city after World War II. So that's to say that country living really was really, really a lifestyle that people were um, hoping to claim, live, and as you learn in the book, went at great length to defend this imagined lifestyle and concept, uh, which at the end of the day, again, these are really full-fledged, typical American suburbs, but it was laced with this idea of a rural um, kind of lifestyle in which that they would purchase. Yeah, I was just thinking about that trajectory that you're presenting, and particularly the 1980s of a Wrangler-Reagan dynasty, like that, that just art, I think is really fascinating and how that transitions then into this kind of notion of refinement that you're talking about. Um, But particularly, you know, when we think about the dichotomy of built landscapes being urban and rural and now suburban being introduced as a potential third option uh, in our analysis. So thinking about this, uh, I do think that one of the things your book does really well is it incorporates people's perspectives from this area into your analysis. Like rather than just looking at it from an infrastructure standpoint or political standpoint, you're actually talking about the lived experiences of these residents. And so eventually for a lot of these residents, you note that the ideals of country living become the heart of the East San Gabriel Valley's aesthetic, cultural, and political identity. So in addition to your analysis of how these ideals of country living impacted the initial construction of the area, Your attention to the residents' perspectives in Chapter 2 through your analysis of oral histories you collected during your research for this book kind of demonstrate those shifting definitions that you just talked about, right, those three phases. So could you tell me more about this process of collecting oral histories and how these waves demonstrate residents' impact on the built environment of the East San Gabriel Valley? Yeah, you know, as a historian, you know, we're often trained to rely on the archive, right, and and the the text and and written materials and photographs and other forms of of documentation and and whatnot and while I definitely do that and did that with this book, you know I also le- leaned into you know relying on oral histories and conducting oral histories because the, there were a lot of areas, um, you know that I was you know that I was curious about that could not be satisfied through, um, you know, visiting an archive or library or, you know, uh, in some cases, you know, um, city and county records, uh, there were aspects of the story that I wanted to tell that really needed to be answered through the people. And one of the, you know, wonderful things about um, writing about contemporary history is that thankfully a lot of these folks were around, still active in the community or still at least uh, living in the area. And I could, you know, after a lot of digging uh, and a lot of phone calls and emails and whatnot, was able. To, I mean, I was able to reach a lot of folks who were who were very 
um, very much big players in uh, whether it's politics of the region, whether it's community development, what, whatever it may be, they were they were there. And so oral histories allowed me to fill in some gaps. So, for example, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, the East San Gabriel Valley does not was not as well covered in terms of academic scholarship. But even beyond the academic scholarship, just in terms of print journalism and media, quite frankly, whether it's the LA Times, whether it's the Orange County Register or any of the kind of regional newspapers like the San Gabriel Valley Tribune or and whatnot, they didn't really focus on the East San Gabriel Valley in terms of coverage as much. And part of it is because of distance. You know, it is still part of LA County, a lot, you know, the majority of the communities that I talk about. But at the same time, you know, they were kind of, there was, you know, even I, I spoke to a, a former uh, journalist in the region. He even admitted himself, you know, look, in the 1980s, that as far as we, as far as we saw it for most of us on the west side of LA, this was country, right? Truly like backwoods in their eyes. And, and they didn't care, frankly, is, is, is one of the phrases that, you know, more or less what he said. And that, that said a lot, right? And as such, you don't have as a historian, as an art, you know, as a, as a researcher, think, you know, unfortunately you don't have as much now materials to work with because if the journalists aren't covering it, if they're not on the beat and, and if there's a lack of interest from readers and from other, you know, um, subscribers to different publications, um, you know, it's hard as a researcher to get that information. So oral histories provided a lot of, um, assistance in getting stories uh, cleared up or, uh, again, verifying information. Uh, and also, when we're talking about historically marginalized communities like Asian Americans, uh, whether it's Chinese immigrants, Vietnamese refugees, Filipino immigrants, first, second generation, whatever we're talking about here, uh, you know, unfortunately, they also are not seen as people who are worthy of being in the archive, right? And their stories are not as discussed and thoroughly researched or, um, you know, celebrated. And so I also had to turn to oral histories to, to talk about issues that were, you know, specific to or important to, uh, to Asian immigrants and their families. Um, the so-called ethnic media, as, as oftentimes it was, is referred to, in other words, like Chinese newspapers or Korean um, radio stations or Taiwanese radio stations, you know, they didn't always um, uh, archive, you know, episodes or conversations or or back issues of newspapers. I was actually astounded that one uh, large Asian American periodical um, told me that they didn't actually archive. And as a historian, I know a lot of people listening right now could relate to this. I was floored and you know, and of course, I found that also disappointing because as a researcher, I feel like that's a treasure trove. But, uh, you know, they didn't see it as valuable uh, as, as much. So, again, going back to the bigger point, I had to turn to interviews to really get a much more fuller story. Right. And to get a, a, right, a, a, a greater um, sense of, you know, how did people feel? Uh, and also, you know, one of the, the joys of this type of research of, you know, I, I consider myself, you know, a historian, but one that really is invested in interdisciplinary research and methodologies, you know, I, I think, you know, when you meet the people themselves and the, and the residents and, and the, 
uh, people you're you're researching, you know, it also adds a different perspective on things because you know you notice things in the mundane, right? Uh, I would visit people's houses when I do these oral history interviews, or I'd meet them at a cafe. And it's in those interactions where you get to not only learn more about the people you're you're interviewing and talking about and writing about, but also um, you know seeing a much more multidimensional um, story, right? And that that was really satisfying. Um, okay, uh, you asked another question, Donna. Sorry, there was another question to that. Yeah, I think I'm meaning more like how maybe they're through these oral histories that you collected, how they, how you were able to learn what influences they had on specific areas of the development of these neighborhoods or this community or their politics and things like that. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, sure. The oral histories themselves allowed me to get a better sense of how residents envisioned their lives and also what they felt were important hallmarks in achieving the American dream. Uh, and that was another, you know, theme that kept coming up in conversation on conversation and archival visit after archival visit was this kind of, imp- you know, these implications, these, these, um, you know, but also in more pointed ways, direct, you know, uh, demonstrations of, you know, if you move here, you're achieving the American dream, you know, and, and a lot of interviewees alluded to the American dream, but also not just believing it but also defending it at a time in which they felt that modernity, contemporary American life, all of these things were, you know, undermining the value of what it means to be an American, what it means to be a a suburbanite, but also um, what it means to be uh, someone that is, you know, just a quote unquote good American, right? There's all these kind of civic pressures and it didn't matter if you were, Chinese American or Taiwanese American, Filipino American, or a white resident that, you know, grew up in Alabama or grew up in Idaho or grew up in um, Illinois that moved to California, there was this understanding that, you know, if you are an ideal American, you live in the suburbs, you chase the American dream and you, you defend it in any way possible. And that informed a lot of their, not just worldview, but their political views as well. So in the book, I talk about things like development. I talk about, um, you know, controversies surrounding things like building an apartment complex. This may seem innocuous and, and very unimportant or uninteresting to a lot of people, but to a lot of suburbanites living in the East San Gabriel Valley in these particular communities I talk about that were more middle class or upper middle class or affluent, the idea of, of you know, higher density development, like a s- apartment complex, or there was even a controversy around building a, a Target store, um, ra- it raised hell. And for them, they saw that as déclassé, it would lower property values, um, it would bring in quote unquote undesirables to their community, in other words, working class or, or other people of color. And as such, then if that happened, right, you build a department, the target department store, you open up this uh, apartment complex, the idea is, okay, now this is going to be like the city. It's going to become run down. You're going to bring people that are not like us, in other words, more racial and class diversity. And therefore, what did we do all this for, <laughs> right? Why, you know, we're, the American dream then is going down the tube 
you know, in the protections that they have as suburban homeowners, as property owners uh, in a in a posh or at least, you know, what a lot of people consider more, you know, desirable communities. All of that then goes down the tube. So that those two examples are among many, right, that I talk about in the book. You know, one thing that a lot of folks uh, found interesting, you know, one of the wonderful things about now, you know, the book's been out for months is, is hearing how people, uh, how different readers, um, you know, what they took away or what some of the more interesting vignettes or intriguing aspects of the book. And one of the more um, uh, popular sections of the book is talking about 99 Ranch Market, um, which is a Chinese Taiwanese supermarket. Why I bring this up is because uh, there was a lot of controversy in these communities around these, uh, not just 99 Ranch Market, but Asian retail spaces. Because in the eyes of some, including not just white residents, but including Asian residents, the idea is if you open up a 99 Ranch Market, a, a, you know, a, a strip mall that's just devoted towards, you know, uh, Korean retail or restaurants, or, you know, if you see more and more Filipino businesses opening up, they were concerned, both white critics and even some Asian critics, that they're, the the suburbs that they live, these country living suburbs, would not only be now not seen as, quote unquote, all American, but they would also, again, become more run down. There would be this idea that more traffic would come in. So there's this association with race, in other words, Asian Americanness or Asianness, with ideas of density, crowdedness, dirtiness, vice. A lot of these associations that, you know, between race and space that we've we've heard and we've known for for generations. You know, we think about the the typical urban Chinatown, even today in 2023, you know, whether it was 20 years ago or 50 years ago or 100, you know, uh, you know nearly 100 years ago or so, people often people see these spaces, these ethnic enclaves as all of those things I just described. And so they feared that that the Chinatown of New York and San Francisco, or, or in this case, LA, would make its way to the suburbs, right? And as such, then the suburbs would no longer be valuable. The idea of the American dream is, at, is, at, is under uh, threat. And all of the work that these residents did to climb their way to this idea of the American dream via, right, through home ownership in these communities would just be, um, uh, you know, go down the tubes and, and not be, uh, you know, the, the type of lifestyle that they work so hard to achieve. So, you know, it, it's a very complicated story and it really does reveal a lot about how race and space intersect in fascinating ways and how politics also uh, informs a lot of the decision making, even in things that may seem to most people as very innocuous or unimportant or uninteresting, uninteresting like a department store of Target or apartment complex, it it, it was a big deal. <laughs> yeah. And I, I love that you bring up those examples because things that I personally would desire, right? Like a 99 Ranch or a Target, um, having these kinds of resistance, uh, it was really interesting for me to read about. And you mentioned in your, your response just now, kind of two defining characteristics that I'm hoping to explore further. One of them, which is the American dream and how residents believed in it, but also defended it, but also kind of this resistance to Asian business or Asian residents and Asian American communities and the associations that are brought to them. 
So I'll try and tackle like one and then the other. Um, so we'll start with maybe a interrogation of the American dream. So you begin stating in the book that significant changes started in the 1980s and that this old guard, which you referred to as a moniker that mostly referred to older, usually white, lower, middle and middle class residents who had political clout or held critical leadership roles, as well as residents to the um, who were resistant to the shifting demographics, employed a colorblind rhetoric to express their outrage. And it seems that by decentering race and their critiques, these residents reinforced their support for U.S. multiculturalism, diversity, and national unity. Could you tell me about how this colorblind rhetoric was used and how this actually veils harmful aspects of contemporary white racism? Kind of going to this idea of, you know, defending an idea that they had believed so much in. And how are then, say, the Asian residents that are moving in to the uh, East San Gabriel Valley in the 1980s antithetical to this ideal of country living? Mm-hmm. That's a terrific question. You know, the the my my I will try to keep this brief because I could definitely talk at length about this. But the 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 interesting paradox and and just really something that I found intriguing that I still right, have a hard time wrapping my head around is that. You know, in the 1980s, 1990s, let's step back for a second, right? This is the era in America where you're having more and more people say we should embrace multiculturalism and diversity, uh, that we are a multiracial nation, and all of those ideas of the melting pot and and the salad and all these metaphors, right, are, are just, you know, uh, flourishing. This is also the time in America where you also have a lot of people starting to push uh, notions of colorblindness and and you know being race blind and all of those things. So there, I, I say this because Asian immigrants who are moving into these suburbs of the East Sangamon Valley and and frankly in suburbs across America are getting mixed messages. On the one hand, you have uh, white residents, whether they're conservative or liberal, um, say, "Oh, you know, we're a diversifying nation." We welcome you as neighbors as long as you, you know, uh, you know, are just, you know, you you put your hand over your heart at the end of the day, and that you're American, right? Uh, and that you can, you know, eat, you know, traditional foods and and abide by different traditions and customs that are important to your heritage. But again, you're American, and you know, at the end of the day, as long as you are demonstrate that, great. When Asian immigrants are moving to these suburbs of the East San Gabriel Valley, and I would say this applies to many communities across the United States, not just in Southern California, they're moving in to these communities at a time in America where people are pushing multiple ideologies around race and racial inclusion. So for example, you have on the one hand, people saying we should embrace multiculturalism, that this is becoming a multiracial, multiethnic nation, and these metaphors of the salad, the, the, you know, uh, melting pot, all of these things are prevailing. Right. And so Asian immigrants are say, are thinking, okay, I can still speak Chinese. I can eat Sundabu. I could go to a Filipino bakery. I can do all of these things, um, rituals, practices, religious, cultural, and what have you. And linguistically, I can still do that. Right. Because this is the America in which, you know, we're living in now and people are, are, putting forth this idea that we are a multi-ethnic nation. At the same time, there's also another strand of thought 
uh, of this idea that we should become race blind, color blind, and that I don't see race, I don't see color, I just see you as a human being, right? And so I bring these ex examples up because Asian immigrants are entering these spaces, these quote unquote all American spaces of the of the suburbs, right? At a time where you know you're getting conflicting messages, right? Do you drop your Asianness? as some would say, and that you should just be, quote unquote, just plain American, uh, you know, or do you take a different approach and you still embrace one's ethnic and, and cultural heritage, um, but with with a, a bit of restraint, right? And Asian immigrants and their families kind of take a, a middle lane, right? Um, they, they try to assimilate, uh, you know, without being, you know, without fully dropping all of their ties and, and, and customs and traditions and, and what's important to them as, let's say, a Taiwanese immigrant or Vietnamese refugee or Filipino or Indian American. Uh, at the same time, they also want to please and also not make waves as quote unquote foreigners. And so they try to not play up those aspects of their life, in the especially in the public sphere. And that's where a lot of these battlegrounds around space and and placemaking occur that I discuss in the book. So we were talking about the Nine Ranch a moment ago, right? Here's a prime example of kind of uh, tying all of this together. So, you know, colorblindness, multiculturalism, um, decentering, you know, all these, you know, around race and, and also how that intersects with space. In the book, I talk about two religious spaces, spiritual spaces. So one is Shilai Temple, which is a Buddhist temple in Hacienda Heights, um, which at the time was the largest Buddhist temple in the Western Hemisphere. So you can imagine just in terms of the scale and size of the place, um, you know, why this was also seen as, as quote unquote, uh, in the eyes of critics, you know, uh, you know, not appropriate, as they would say, for the suburbs, right? Okay, I also talk about St. Lorenzo Catholic Church, which is a Catholic church, but the saint is Filipino. Why I talk about these examples and how this relates to colorblind logic and, and, and how that conflicts with multiculturalism, all these things, is that particularly white critics who were um, resisting demographic shifts in the region, they would use colorblind logic uh, and this idea of just being quote unquote American as a way to veil racist or white supremacist views. And so what I'm saying is, for example, with Shilai Temple, one of the points of controversy was around the design of the temple. It's a Buddhist temple, right? And so one of the things that critics would say is, well, this looks out of place for the suburbs. You know, um, they didn't like the color scheme, like it's red and gold and that the architecture design, architectural designs and, and the way, um, the space itself was erected was it was it was too quote unquote foreign looking right and so rather than say you know we don't want buddhist chinese residents and immigrants coming to this space you know which some of them were vocal about saying it that blatantly but others who maybe align with those views but didn't want to say it they'd say they instead say oh well this isn't about race this isn't about religion it's just that the design is, quote unquote, not appropriate for the suburbs, right? Or they would say that this seems out of place for our community. So that that's where the kind of wordplay, right, comes in. And, and that's really where, you know, 
a lot of people then start to, started to read between the lines. And by people, I'm saying Asian immigrants who started to say, actually, I think you're saying something without saying it, right? And, and that's where colorblind logic and rhetoric comes into conversation. Um, in the case of St. Lorenzo Church, briefly on this, this is, again, a Catholic church. So you would not think that this is a racialized space. Um, but the saint in which it was named after is, is from the Philippines. The suburb in which um, the church was built in, which is Walnut, one of the suburbs I talk about, you know, middle, upper middle class, affluent suburb um, with a, uh, with today an Asian majority, by the way, um, at the time of its construction in the 1990s, uh, th- one of the concerns again was, you know, uh, that it's a Catholic church that would draw in a large Filipino congregation. And th- that's exactly what it did. Right. But white residents and some other residents who are critical of this, they didn't weren't all white, but there were other um, communities as well that were concerned rather than say, oh, well, we don't want this church to be built here because you're going to attract more Filipinos. They would then use, again, colorblind logic or rhetoric or or language to describe their um, discomforts and they would use design uh, and and architecture and planning as reasons to hopefully curb, in some cases, stop construction. So one of the things that they took issue with, critics, especially the old guard uh, that you mentioned earlier, the kind of older, more conservative, uh, oftentimes white residents would say, well, that the height of the cross is, is too tall uh, on the blueprints here. Um, you know, what are you suggesting? Uh, that Catholics are superior to Protestants? That's one of the logics that was said at some of these meetings. Um, or another thing was, oh, well, you know, that this is named after a Filipino saint. It's not welcoming to me as someone that's not Filipino, right? When there are saints, you know, people have been, um, uh, you know, uh, declared saints of all ethnic and racial class, uh, and ethnic and racial lines across the world. Uh, this just so happens to be a Filipino saint um, in a community where there was a growing Filipino population. And again, they use that as a, say, a way to say, oh, well, actually you're self-segregating now, or you're creating these kind of ethnic spaces that is not welcoming to non-Asians or non-Filipinos. And some of that logic, again, came through in other spaces as well, like supermarket spaces, strip malls. Um, when 99 Ranch opened again, people were saying, you know, uh, some critics were saying, hey, uh, that's not really friendly to me. You know, I feel like I have no control over the suburbs anymore. And by we and by controllers saying that these suburbs are no longer white or dominated by Euro-American or Anglo-American culture. Uh, and, and that was deemed threatening to not just their communities, but the idea of what a suburb should look like, how it should feel, and who resides there. That's so fascinating that, you know, to see how in these various examples, there's this resistance that veils, you know, these sentiments and resistance in these particular ways. But as you know, in the book, that doesn't actually stop or slow the Asian suburbanization of the East San Gabriel Valley. And now it's almost impossible to disassociate the East San Gabriel Valley from Asian Americanness. Like for someone like myself who grew up in the Midwest, like the SGV, which you um, affectionately call it, right? Um, felt to felt to me like a playground for Asian Americanness, right? With its shops, restaurants, retail stores. Um, it gave me access to a transnational Asian market and culture that was not accessible to me um, growing up in Nebraska. 
So I had this framing going into reading your book. And what I found most striking about your book was that Asian residents reinforced ideals of country living too, despite it being explicitly not designed for them. So to put it bluntly, what are Asian residents getting in return for maintaining both the real and imagined aspects of country living, or this ideal suburbia that you had just mentioned? And how does this narrative get turned on them later on? Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that that is something that I, I discussed at length in the book, right? That um, hopefully listeners you know, will have a chance to pick up. The what do they gain, right? Well, what a lot of residents, you know, Asian immigrants and their families, why they work so hard, right, to defend country living, whether that is through uh, a concern about property values or, you know, who their neighbors are, all these things. For them, this investment in protecting country living was a way to demonstrate one's Americanness. And again, we have to remember the time periods in which we're discussing. We're talking about the, the 1980s, the 1990s, the 2000s. And while the country has, you know, became more and more racially and ethnically diverse at the time, at the end of the day, immigrants then, and even to a certain extent, immigrants today who come to America, they're still fed a lot of the same tropes and ideas of how you're supposed to act and behave in America, right? You assimilate, you, you embrace a quote unquote mainstream culture that is defined historically by by Europeans and Euro-Americans. And so by investing in country living and trying to protect and defend it, whether that's resisting a 99 ranch or whether that is resisting a Buddhist temple and other examples that I lay out in the book, um, by, by defending it, that means that they have protected not just their investment in a home and their life in these communities, but they've also demonstrated at great length, that they can be good Americans, right? That they are also investing in the American dream. And that's something that's worthy of protecting. They're gaining also a sense of this idea that, you know, by by living in these communities and keeping them desirable, they gain entree into the upper echelons of society. And we have to remember too, again, at this time, you know, the suburbs were, you know, where people wanted to live. And if you're living in Southern California, there are handfuls of certain communities that that have cachet. And at the time, places like Walnut, places like Diamond Bar, and then the West Singapore Valley, places like San Marino, Arcadia, um, and whatnot, these were places that were seen as if you are Asian and you move to America, and if you can get that zip code, you have truly made it, not only as an immigrant, but as a as an ideal American. And by, you know, investing in country living and protecting it and using that logic to to fight development, to um, resist other types of policies that were deemed threatening to their communities, then they can also still maintain their class privilege. Right. And that really, again, holds a lot of weight to these immigrants who, in some cases, you know, they really did uh, work truly hard to get to those spaces. Some of these immigrants came in already with some wealth, but there were also immigrants who felt that, you know, I worked my butt off, right, to live in this community, to provide for my family. And in their eyes, they would do anything to protect that, right? Uh, and, And we also have to remember, finally, that a lot of these immigrants who came here at that time in the 80s and 90s, you know, we're still, especially in the 80s, 
uh, and prior to that, it's still under the specter of the Cold War. And so a lot of these immigrants and refugees are coming in with strong anti-communist views. They, they subscribe to the American dream um, because of this idea as America as this beacon of democracy and, and success uh, and, and the, the promises of capitalism, right, that they were fed in Asia, not just through popular culture, but in some cases through direct forms of colonialism and neocolonialism, right? So all of this is to say that um, for Asian immigrants, especially who moved to these communities, you know, what they got out of it was just the idea that if they can defend their communities, what, however that, however we define that, whether it's politically, culturally, economically, um, you know, th- that they then have truly made it, right? And that's really key here. In, in time, I will say that it, in some cases, that defense of country living also worked against them. And in the book, I lay this out as well. So just a couple of quick examples. Um, You know, some Asian immigrants, for example, you know, they wanted to, again, open up spaces in their communities that uh, would allow them to practice their ethnic or, you know, cultural traditions and practice uh, heritage. Um, But again, um, even though many of them did subscribe to this idea of protecting a particular vision and lifestyle of the suburbs, when they wanted to negotiate those boundaries or, or expand upon this idea of what we mean by country living or what we mean by suburban life, they would be met with that same logic that they also believed in, which is this doesn't belong in country living, <laughs> right? This shouldn't be in country living. And so that's where it backfired in them. That class interest then got in the way, right, uh, of other ethnic, you know, more you know, uh, racial uh, interests. So it it's a very complicated story. And the, and the, the final thing I will say is that Asian immigrants and their families who lived in these communities, right, were simultaneously friends and foes of non-Asian residents. So on the one hand, you had Asians positioned as friends. So what I mean by that is to say they were seen as good neighbors because these immigrants, especially from Hong Kong, Taiwan, uh, and other uh, Asian immigrant groups that had more money and and wealth and transnational capital, they were seen as, oh, well, they're great because they're raising our property values, our home that we paid, you know, 190,000 for in the 1980s is now worth 500,000. It's because the Asian immigrants are moving here and they're, and they're they're, uh, bringing their wealth with them. They'd say that they're great because uh, Asian immigrants are great neighbors because they believe in country living. And therefore they also engage in NIMBY politics, right? They will stop things like a target department store. I talk about also the, 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 halting of a landfill because uh, Asian immigrants like their white neighbors and other neighbors were saying, you know, a landfill doesn't belong in the suburbs. Well, where do you throw away the trash then, right? Where does that go? But they said, put it somewhere else. And so they were seen as good neighbors in that sense. And also that they were oftentimes not just necessarily politically, but culturally conservative. At least that was the stereotype and, and perception of Asian immigrants. And so they were seen as good neighbors in that regard, where they became enemies or foes of the suburbs, and that is in his case, Asians, um, was around, again, the built environment. Um, they were 
transgressions in terms of, for example, putting Chinese or Korean signage uh, when they're not supposed to, or at least it was understood as an unspoken rule that you don't put that. Um, some cities took action and started to imp implement codes around language. Um, as a result of that, um, they were seen as foes in spaces like uh, school. Uh, K through 12 schools became a place in which Asian immigrants and their children, uh, they were seen as, as uh, not only model minorities and whiz kids, but on the flip side, they were seen as cutthroat and academically too challenging, right? There's a story that I talk about in the book, or at least a mention of this, of how, um, you know, uh, some white parents were upset that uh, the woodworking course uh, at their high school was <laughs> was dropped um, because there wasn't as much demand. And instead, there was, you know, a, an investment in more AP calculus courses. And they, they blamed the Asian kids for that. And they, they blamed Asian parents for that. And, and therefore making uh, the school site no longer not just an academic space, but um, or not just a social space, but, um, you know, one that was just too... Um, challenging, right? And so these are just examples of this that space in which Asian immigrants and their and their families had to um, deal with. They were kind of like in this liminal, in between space, uh, kind of going back and forth between wanted and unwanted, desired and undesirable, friend and foe, and and a lot of this again is under this all these different challenges around how people understand race and, and inclusion and racial inclusion at this time. Right. And I love that you highlight this space in between because your references to in-betweenness was really fascinating for me to think about not only the categories that we use to ascribe, but like also maybe suburbia as a space between, right? Uh, urban and rural. And so, you know, I think one of the things that you mentioned is when Asian Americans become the new gatekeepers, right? It's not without resistance, not even at the very end, right? And so your final two chapters continued the discussion of actions that are done in the late 1980s and the 1990s to retain these notions of country living, such as the slow growth movement and the incorporation into LA County or not incorporating, right? Uh, which we all know is more about kind of limiting Asian influence and minimizing Asian presence in the region rather than maintaining the rural, conservative, and pastoral characteristics that it originally was associated with. So if we're thinking about the project as a whole, what does this tell us about the tricky and contradictory nature of the suburban experience in the East San Gabriel Valley and the social practices of exclusion? Yeah, I, you know... The, the short answer is that, you know, I feel, and I mentioned this in the introduction, that a lot of this doesn't make sense. <laughs> and what I mean by that is to say that a lot of, you know, this is going back to our earlier question that we were talking about with methodology, for example, with oral history. Um, one of the things that kept coming up was just the, the range of contradictory views um, and, and how people's views changed over time. And, you know, look, that is just about how people are in general. You know, uh, human beings are not static, uh, at least I would like to believe. And um, as such, you know, as I was telling the stories, I was trying to un unpack all of this, um, perspectives kept changing, not necessarily from my end, but just how who I was interviewing uh, and, and the stories that I'd read and the stories that I heard. And so um, what I'm getting at here and this may not be directly answering your question, is that, um, you know, 
that the contradictions in itself is 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 the story, right? Is the story itself, and these suburbs are rural, at least that's how they were positioned, but they were also very much urbanized. Um, the Asian immigrants were told that you are welcome to these communities, but then there were many instances in which they were forced out or shut out of um, in civic life and in, and in other spaces of suburban everyday living. Um, so ultimately what I'm trying to get at here is that this is a messy uh, you know, time to be living in the suburbs, because I think at the end of the day, this was a period of growing pains and everyone was trying to adjust to different and new norms, whether they were white or not white, immigrant or not, uh, middle class, lower middle class, affluent. Uh, this was a time in which the country as a whole was shifting and the suburbs in general were shifting. You know, one of the things about, you know, what what made the Sangamon Valley, especially then, somewhat of an anomaly was that these were communities where you had 20, 30, 40%, if not higher, of Asian Americans. And at the time, these were very rare, um, you know, examples of that. And as I mentioned towards the end of the book, within the last 20 years, we've seen uh, a flourishing of Asian ethnic enclaves, whether they constitute the, a plurality or majority, whether it's you know, the suburbs of Atlanta, like Gwinnett County, or suburbs of Chicago, or places like Palisades Park or Edison, New Jersey, or, you know, um, you know, for example, in DC, Annandale, which is outside in Northern Virginia, uh, they are now other Asian suburban communities. And they, similarly to what happened in Sangamon Valley, also dealt with uh, various forms of resistance and, and residents across racial and class lines trying to understand what does it mean to be a suburb in the late 20th and early 21st century? And what, why do a lot of people, whether they were born in America or not, subscribe to a certain set of ideas and images of what a suburb is supposed to look like? And it's that tension and that idea of the suburb that is at the heart of this book. P- people trying to redefine it or shift it or change it, but also people not wanting to do any of those things. And as such, that impacts our built environment and also our politics and culture of the suburbs. And so these are things that I, I hope that readers, you know, think about and grapple with, Um, you know, I think a lot of the, you know, the untidiness of this story is precisely, you know, reflecting how messy it was at the time in terms of trying to understand race, racial difference, class diversity, and what a suburb is supposed to look like and how it should function and operate at a time of great, tremendous demographic shifts and also shifts in racial ideologies, politics, and also how Americans are building their communities, literally building their communities at this time in the late 20th century. I really could not do a better summary of all the ways that this book contributes to the the scholarship that already exists, but also to getting us to think about these messy contradictions like you're talking about, like rather than trying to wrap up neat ends, maybe there is space for us to engage the messiness and to engage the contradictions and to find those spaces in between that allow us to have such rich analysis like that is found in resisting change in suburbia. So before we go, I do want to ask maybe one last question um, for our readers. What can we look forward from you in the future, right? What What's occupying your time? What's Where are your thoughts going these days? 
Yeah, you know, one of the um, aspects that I discuss in the book is about Asian American conservatism. And so one project that I'm early in the stages of working on and researching is about um, Asian American conservatism, but uh, kind of chronicling uh, particularly Asian immigrant and second generation involvement in uh, Republican Party or conservative and libertarian movements across the 20th and, and early 21st centuries. So I'm hoping to, um, you know, expand upon this theme in, you know, in in a manuscript, a, a, a much larger project. Uh, we'll see, you know, as 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 uh, folks who are listening and and a lot of us who do research, as we know, you know, we kind of kind of go with what the archives, you know, uh, what we find and and what we're able to piece together a story. But I think there's a lot of rich analysis and reflections that can be made uh, upon, you know, understanding this history. Because, you know, in ethnic studies, in U.S. history and political history and, and, and other er- realms of, of intellectual and academic life, um, you know, there's a perception or at least an understanding or at least uh, idea, prevailing idea that people of color, immigrants uh, as well are, are liberal. Uh, or generally have more liberal or left-leaning um, or leftist views. And while that is true in, with some groups and in certain eras and moments of American history, you know, I've come to find um, not just as a researcher, but just as an Asian American, as someone who identifies as Asian American, that there are large swaths of the Asian American community that do not have liberal or or leftist views on politics. And in fact, um, and a lot of us know this, you know, there are certain groups within Asian America that have historically been solidly on the right. And so I want to unpack that, uh, and not necessarily in the sense of trying to, um, you know, uh, write an opinion about this, but more about trying to historicize, you know, why do, you know, for example, Vietnamese Americans or Filipino Americans or Indian Americans or Chinese Americans, you know, depending on eras, generations and time periods, why did they lean right on this issue or on that issue? What is informing their politics and what they do in the ballot box, you know, once they're confronted with a decision of who to vote for and how to cast a ballot, but also, you know, how particularly for immigrants and refugees, what they experienced abroad, right, in, you know, before coming to America, how that also impacted how they see American life and their investment in, uh, in, in civic life in general. So these are the types of things that I'm going to be thinking about in this book um, and, and to help explain and historicize a history uh, you know, uh, there are many histories, but a history of Asian American conservatism throughout the 20th and early 21st century. So, so wish me luck. Let's see what I find and what stories I could put together. And, and I think there, I think, you know, I'm hoping that this would contribute to our, uh, our better, a better understanding of how Asian Americans are involved civically and, and how they've contributed to uh, the political life of the United States over time. Oh, that sounds fascinating, James. I'm so excited to see what comes up for you in these upcoming years, this new book project. Um, so thank you so much for sharing time with me today and for joining us in conversation. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. And um, I hope everyone has a chance to read the book if you haven't already. And um, thank you again. So I'm going to stop. And then if you could just stay on a little bit, then yeah.